Welcome to The Savvy Sauce, where we have practical chats for intentional living. I'm your host, Laura Duggar, and I'm so glad you're here. Today's message is not intended for little ears. We'll be discussing some adult themes, and I want you to be aware before you listen to this message. Lehman Property Management Company has the apartment you will be able to call home with over 1,700 apartment units available in central Illinois. Visit them today at laymanproperties.com or connect with them on Facebook. Shanti Feldon is my returning guest today. She's a social researcher and best-selling author, and she's going to share findings from her most recent project all around the topic of sexual intimacy in marriage. Here's our chat. Welcome back to the Savvy Sauce, Shanti. Oh, thanks. It's so great to be back with you guys. Well, you've been a guest previously when you spoke about understanding men and women better. But today, I'm excited to learn about the discoveries from this fabulous book that you and Dr. Michael Seitzma recently co-authored entitled Secrets of Sex and Marriage. So let's begin here. Logistically, how did you find people to survey and interview who felt comfortable enough sharing this information? (laughs) That is the question, right? (laughs) When I first felt like I was being led in this direction and that God wanted us to tackle this topic, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Because, you know, all of our research projects, they all start with trying to find out like how all of us like average people think and feel and the real issues and the stuff we don't get and where the pain points are. And I'm like, how am I ever going to get information on this? And so thankfully, here's actually what happened. It And it worked really well. We ended up doing all the normal kind of anonymous interviews that I normally do with whoever is sitting next to me on the subway, right? Like, or whoever is next to me on the airplane, but I couldn't do that on this topic because, you know, I'd get arrested. (laughs) And so what we ended up doing was we did the anonymous interviews over Zoom with their cameras blacked out and with fake names. So Jeff and I did all the interviews together and They could see us, like our camera was on, but we couldn't see them. We had no idea who they were. They picked fake names and some of them were hilarious, like, you know, Farm Boy and Buttercup (laughs) (laughs) or like Wanda and Vision. And it was very sweet, but it allowed people to really share safely, knowing that we had no idea who they were. That's so creative. And I'd love to know what findings were you most surprised with by this study? Well, you know, it's interesting. I'll be candid. Pretty much everything surprised me. Mm. (laughs) One of the things that we try to do in all of our research projects is dig out the stuff that sort of surprises us average couples. (laughs) And so one of the things we were focusing on was what is it that we don't get? Because basically, we're trying to dig out the little things that make a big difference, right? And if people already know them, they would already be doing them most of the time. And so by definition, we were trying to dig out the stuff that surprised us that we didn't know mattered. 
And so I partnered on this survey and on this project with this renowned sex therapist named Dr. Michael Seitzma, who's very, very well respected and looked to as one of the key leaders in the Christian community in this area. So nothing surprised him. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, yeah, heard that a million times. But everything that we included actually surprised us. If you want to know, probably my most important surprise, one of the things that we had covered in a couple of previous projects, but even so, I found myself being like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I had no idea, is that when we're talking about physical intimacy as a couple, one of the things that is a really, really common dynamic is that when one partner kind of, just to put it kind of bluntly, one partner wants more connection in that way than the other, like there's a little bit of a mismatch, which by the way, is the case with 79% of couples. So the vast majority of us, one partner is, is kind of wanting more. The assumption that's running under the surface is that the reason for that disconnect is that one person has a lower drive than the other and a lower libido. And that, yeah, that could sometimes be actually an accurate thing that they have a lower drive, but we found that most of the disconnect isn't because of that. And one of the most important surprises to me is that within most couples, you're working with two different types of desire. And most of us don't even know that's a thing. And so that to me was the biggest like aha moment. And I can explain the two different types of desire if you're interested. Yes, please do, because these two types of desire manifest in the reverse order. So it's fascinating. It really is. It's crazy. So, and like I said, we had covered this a little bit in for women only and for men only, but we went much more in depth in this topic, in this research project and learned all these things about the physiology that were just, whoa, like so helpful to know. Basically, if you think about it, the version of what we think desire is, is what we see kind of... (laughs) in a movie, (laughs) like it's the Hollywood idea where the guy and the girl kind of look at each other and there's a spark, right? Mm -hmm. And they both have this sense of hunger for this. And, you know, they start kissing and pretty soon the clothes are off and they're in bed. Like that's the normal, what you see on the screen. And for many of us, it doesn't actually work that way. And so we think something's wrong or our spouse thinks something is wrong. And what we found out is usually there's nothing wrong. I mean, yeah, sure. Some people might have medical issues or whatever, but most of the time it's these two different types of desire. And that sort of Hollywood version where you feel that sense of hunger and you want to connect that you could call initiating desire. But there's a second type of desire called receptive desire. And the person with receptive desire generally actually has to decide to get engaged sexually. What we found physiologically is that literally the desire works in the reverse order in the physiology where that person decides to get engaged and then once their physiology starts getting stimulated, 
then they start feeling that desire that maybe their spouse felt five or 10 minutes ago. And that right there, that one like aha moment, because that is the majority of couples. One partner has initiating desire and one partner has receptive desire. And actually understanding that is like, wow, like it makes such a difference because then neither of us feel like someone's broken. It's it just is so life giving once we understand this. Yes, because you make so many great points in that section about anticipation time kind of waking up that receptive partner and possibly one of my favorite quotes of the book, just because it was summed up brilliantly, is where it says, in general, for men, desire leads to sex, while for (laughs) women, sex leads to desire. Yep. And that is the case for the vast majority. Now, there are always exceptions, right? Like one of the things that was really interesting is that 73% of women have receptive desire, but 24% have initiating desire. (laughs) And so, you know, it's about this one in four thing. There's an exception. So some of the women listening to this are going to recognize more of the initiating thing, like for themselves. But for most of us as women, it really is life-changing to realize I am not weird. (laughs) I am not broken. And also, if we happen to have that receptive desire and our spouse happens to have that initiating desire, it's encouraging to our spouse too. Because many wives told us that their husband's you know, they thought that they just weren't desirable enough. Like there's something wrong with them that their wife just isn't as interested. And one of the things this allows us to do is to tell all the initiating desire people out there, which is, you know, usually going to be the husband, but not always, is that just so you know, you think, why isn't my spouse interested? Well, interested is an initiating desire word. Your spouse is interested, but that interest isn't activated until after they get going. And so they're making a decision knowing that it will be good eventually and wanting to connect. And actually, that should be encouraging as well for all the initiating desire spouses out there. It's not the hunger that maybe they want us to have, (laughs) but that hunger will arrive down the road. (laughs) Well, and it's just incredible how you've articulated this in a really practical way so that it's a book that couples can just read, maybe not even a chapter at a time, out loud with one another. And I love how it's even brought in this third type of desire, which is intentional desire of, okay, it's been a little while. We've been really crazy with the kids and our schedules but we know this is good for us. So we're going to pursue one another regardless of our actual desire. Intentional desire is sort of, it overlaps with the others. And it's basically, I want to want this, right? Like it's kind of like a couple years ago, I unexpectedly found out that I have breast cancer and I had to go through all, all of the treatments and everything and they caught it early. It was fine. But one of the things that we realized pretty quickly is that my normal eating habits needed to change. 
And they needed to be more intentional, right? Like, because I'm always on the go, I'm always running from an airport to, <laughs> to speak at a women's group somewhere or whatever. And so I'm running through a fast food place and like, okay, I don't actually want to eat healthy, if I'm really honest, like I love sugar. <laughs> and I'm, I'm actually very happy with running through a drive through. But no, I want to want to eat healthy. And it's sort of an intentional thing. And then I'm glad I did. And actually, the last you know year or two, now I'm so glad that I've started to eat more healthy to try to get my weight back in balance and try to get my health back in balance and prevent the cancer from coming back, that now I'm actually enjoying it. And I don't want to stop. And it's kind of that same thing when it comes to our intimate life, is that intentionality for many people it actually stimulates that desire. Now, for some people, it's just always going to be a choice. But for many, when you want to want it and you sort of take steps towards it, then the chemicals get engaged and then you want it more and it becomes a positive cycle. I love how you share all of that because I think God really does meet us there when we give that to him and say, okay, I, to be honest, I don't want this right now, but I want to want this. Can you help me? Yep. <laughs> anyway, something good like that. He does provide that strength. So thank you for sharing that story. And I'm so grateful that you're in remission from cancer. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I appreciate that. Let's take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. With over 1,700 apartment units available throughout Pekin, Peoria, Peoria Heights, Morton, Washington, and Canton, and with every price range covered, you will have plenty of options when you rent through Lehman Property Management Company. They have townhomes, duplexes, studios, and garden-style options located in many areas throughout Pekin. In Peoria, a historic downtown location and apartments adjacent to the OSF Medical Center provide excellent choices. Check out their brand new luxury property in Peoria Heights overlooking the boutique shops and fine dining on Prospect. And in Morton, they offer a variety of apartment homes with garages, a hot downtown location, and now a brand new high-end complex near Idlewood Park. Their beautiful, spacious apartments with private garages in a quiet but convenient location await you in Washington. And if you're looking in Canton, don't miss Village Square Apartments. Renters may be excited to learn about their flexible leases, pet-friendly locations, and even mini storage units available in some locations. Lehman Property Management Company has a knowledgeable and helpful staff, including several employees with over 30 years working with this reputable company. If you want to become a part of their team, contact them about open office positions. They're also hiring in their maintenance department, so we invite you to find out why so many people have chosen to make a career with them. Check them out on Facebook today or email their friendly staff at leasing at laymanprops.com. You can also stop by their website at laymanproperties.com. That's L-E-M-A-N properties.com. Check them out and find your place to call home today. What are some common wrong assumptions that you found many couples making? And then what's some truth that we can replace it with? Okay, there's a couple, and I'll just give you an example based on what we were just talking about. One of the wrong assumptions is that my spouse is wired the same way as I am. 
Like there's just this one type of desire, for example. And so the truth to replace it with is, okay, actually, it is highly likely that we are wired in two different ways. And that was God's choice. Like if you're upset that your spouse doesn't have initiating desire and you want them to be hungry for you, like take that up with God and not with your spouse because that's the wiring, right? Then another common wrong assumption is kind of like, well, it just is what it is. And so I'm just wired this way. And so there's nothing I can do about it and kind of deal with it. And that's actually wrong, too, because we are called to care for one another and what matters to both of us, actually. And so the truth there is is basically this concept that, you know what, we're always going to need to be mindful of this. This is something that the initiating desire spouse, for example, is going to have to be mindful to say, oh, wow, you know, my spouse is making a decision to engage with me. I need to see that as a beautiful thing and not something that's like less than. And to be grateful for that and to try to be that type of person that draws them in so they want to engage. And I'm always going to need to work on that. That's a good thing. And the person with receptive desire, for example, is probably always going to need to work on that intentionality and that mindfulness of wanting to want and recognizing how important this is for a marriage, both scientifically and biblically, we see that. And so assuming that it's a healthy relationship and assuming that, you know, there's goodwill between both spouses and this isn't an abusive or controlling kind of thing, that working on that becomes a beautiful thing. That truth of, you know what, this is something that I'm always going to want to be mindful about on both sides helps us to sort of get outside ourselves, which I think is really, really important in this area. And with that mindset, you also conclude solutions do exist. And I think that gives everyone hope and hopefully some motivation to seek help in this if this is an area of struggle beyond what you're saying, that we need to always be mindful of this and working on it. Yes, exactly. Well, in marriage, then, how can we use our wiring differences to create a dynamic love life? One of the most crucial things that we found in this research project, I think one of the biggest surprises was about these two different types of desires, right? But one of the most important application pieces, one of the things that will make everything better, is to basically be curious. The need for each of us, both the husband and the wife, to approach our spouse with sort of this curious stance. One of the things we found actually statistically is that it's really common for us to just kind of go on autopilot sort of and make some assumptions about one another and we're running around with all the different things of life and the kids and work and you know whatever is going on and so we're kind of operating based on this day-to-day sense of and I hate to say this out loud but this day-to-day sense of sort of cluelessness (laughs) (laughs) it's like we're just going about our day and we're no longer curious like we were at the beginning in our relationship 
Or even worse, actually, and this does happen, and this is a damaging thing, is sometimes we've veered over, we're no longer not just not curious and kind of clueless, we've sort of veered over into critical, where something is wrong with you, right? Or the eye rolls, or I can't believe you said it that way, you know, forget it, or whatever, like that kind of critical stance. And those two, the critical stance and the, what you might call the clueless stance, are both really actually destructive to the marriage as a whole. And one of the things that changes a lot, we found statistically, is that if you can snap back into that curious stance that you definitely had at the beginning, like, okay, what matters to you? And I'm talking about big picture marriage stuff, not just in the bedroom, right? Like, why is it that that when I said such and such, I'm I'm curious, why did that make you so upset? Like, what was going on in your mind and your heart when I I said that about like, why did you let the kids run around outside without their shoes? Like, why did that make you upset? And then it's like, oh, oh, you know, your spouse is articulating something like, well, I've been with them all day. So you could do your work thing, you know, on Zoom and they were having so much fun. And here I was feeling like you were criticizing me for this one thing instead of saying, thank you for taking the kids all day. Oh, okay, got it. (laughs) Sorry, like I didn't, I wasn't thinking. And that's that curious stance of what matters to you? What do you feel about this? That's for everything in marriage. But then when you apply that, especially to your intimate life, and especially about what are you thinking and feeling, you know, here, what's the, what matters to you? What what makes you uncomfortable and why that kind of stuff it really improves everything because it's basically an antidote to cluelessness and to criticism and contempt and just a bunch of other things that cause issues in relationship okay so shanti then if we are wanting to remain curious, are there any other specific questions that you recommend we ask our spouse periodically? Absolutely. One of the most simple, like superpower kind of questions is basically, and and this is, and this is you asking yourself or asking your spouse, but it's really more about asking yourself this, which is essentially like, what's important to my husband? my spouse right now that I don't know that I need to know, like what is mattering to them that I'm not aware of. And actually one of the ways we designed the book on purpose was to help people get at that question because we designed it so that the uh, spouses could kind of read it together and read it out loud to each other. I'll tell you something that just happened a few days ago My husband and I were doing another podcast with another couple that does a lot of marriage stuff in their ministry. And on their podcast, one of the things that they told us, which was so encouraging, was they said that they had gotten our book because probably like with you, 
Our publisher sent a copy of the book so you could look at it and the producer could decide whether they wanted to have us on for the interview. And they said, oh, you know what? We have had this practice of taking just, you know, whatever book for several months and reading it out loud to one another in the evening. And, and often, you know, we'll read three or so pages a night and just talk about it. And they said, we started your book as our book that we're going to be reading for, you know, for the next few weeks or whatever. And they said, we're not getting three pages a night. We're getting like three sentences a night. (laughs) (laughs) Because we start, you know, saying, is this you? And the other person is like, yes, that's me. And the other person is like, what? (laughs) Tell me about this. And so that of getting at what is important to my spouse right now that I need to know, that really is this superpower question that will help improve everything in marriage. I love that. You're right. Sometimes the best questions that are going to unlock deep conversation are really the most simple. So that's a really helpful application for today. And were there any other surprising discoveries that we haven't discussed yet? I'll tell you another sort of surprise that was a really interesting one for me, which was that, okay, this is going to sound really weird, but I'm going to say it anyway. We don't actually, most couples don't actually realize that one of the reasons for disappointment, you know how that sort of dynamic where somebody thought something was going to happen tonight and then it doesn't. And then the other spouse feels like this pressure, like, wait, you were expecting something, you know, that kind of that disappointment and pressure dynamic. Well, it turns out one of the reasons for that is that we just don't have a good process for initiation, which people listening to this are probably like, what are you talking about? (laughs) But really, truly, it's a huge deal. I was so surprised that so many of those hurt feelings can actually be prevented if both spouses have a signal, like there's some way of signaling interest or openness. Like one of the things that I thought was hilarious was I was talking to our co-author, Dr. Michael Seitzma, and he was telling me something that had just happened in his therapy office recently, where he had a couple that were really, really disconnected around this area. And the husband said, my wife just doesn't ever want it. Like, she's just never interested. And his wife said, well, yeah, I am. I mean, I, you know, may not feel it at the beginning, but I know I will when I get going. And so, you know, I'm open to it. And he's like, but you never show me that you're open. And and she said, last night, we're sitting on the couch watching news and I put my hand on your knee. (laughs) And and the husband was like, that was you initiating? (laughs) Like, and it was this thing where they just had never talked about, like, what are the signals? What are the things that we know means I'm open, I'm not, I'm interested, can we do this another night? In a lot of couples we found in the survey, the vast majority, and this was a nationally representative survey, the vast majority had no signals. But the ones that did were far more likely to connect. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Going back to that connection, it's back to the foundation of remaining curious, having that stance and communicating. 
Yes. One of the best stories. It cracked me up. One of the couples, they had this thing where the wife, who is the receptive desire spouse, when she come, would come home from her shift as a pharmacist, she would like discreetly write on their mirror in like, you know, erasable ink and erasable marker. She would write a number <laughs> on the mirror between one and 10. And her husband would like sneak upstairs and check it. Like, you know, they're help the kids dinner and homework and activities and, you know, whatever. But the number was basically how receptive am I feeling tonight? Wow. And it was like, if it was an eight to a 10, it's basically like, I'm a sure bet if you ask <laughs> kind of thing. And one to four was, and I thought this was hilarious. One to four, she said, was stay back if you want to keep your parts. <laughs> <laughs> and that five to seven was basically like, I'm not sure. Like, maybe, maybe not. Like, let's talk about it. Not sure. But that basically helped completely prevent, 100% prevent that sense of anticipation and expectation and something's going to happen and wait, they're tired, you know, and it really allowed the couple to communicate about it well and to set expectations with one another well. And I just, I loved that example. I thought it was brilliant. Goodness, couples are so creative. I love that. And will you elaborate on your finding, and I'll just quote you here, that men and women tend to have different insecurities that the process of sex can help heal or hurt? Yeah. So going all the way back to the research on for women only about understanding the inner lives of men and for men only, which is helping men understand the inner lives of women. One of the least understood things that often causes problems, and, and this, by the way, causes a lot of issues in a lot of areas of marriage, not just in physical intimacy, but it has a direct application here, is the reality that for most men and for most women, and you're, I'm talking about, depending on our survey, it was somewhere in the 75 to 85% range for men and 75 to 85% range for women, which means, by the way, again, there's that exception quotient, right? Mm -hmm. But that we tend to have different primary insecurities and vulnerabilities and self-doubts that are running under the surface. And it's kind of a painful raw nerve. And we withdraw when that raw nerve is hit in some way. And women's insecurity in general is basically, am I lovable? That's kind of what's running on the surface, which is one of the reasons that we love to feel loved because it speaks to that. And it says you are lovable for who you are as a person on the inside, right? But for men, in most cases, again, not all, but in most cases, the insecurity is actually really different. It's not, am I lovable, but am I able? Am I adequate? Do I measure up? And you could basically say and summarize it as, am I any good at what I do on the outside? So women are more like, am I worthy of being loved for who I am on the inside? 
men are much more questioning, am I any good at what I do on the outside? And when there's pain in the relationship, men, if that raw nerve is hit, if again, like he's been outside with the kids and you come outside and like, why are you letting them run around with other shoes? That's saying you're no good at what you do. We don't think of it that way, but that's what he's hearing. What you did on the outside, it wasn't good enough. You failed. And it's painful. It's a, it's because of that insecurity. It's a, it's a raw nerve. And if a man feels that self doubt and that vulnerability regularly hit, he tends to kind of pull back emotionally. He shuts down. He, he becomes passive. He stops talking. He might get angry. It's a signal of pain. For us as women, again, this is not 100%, but when we're hurt as women and feeling like I'm not lovable, he doesn't love me, you know, it's too easy for him to spend all the time at the office and, you know, he doesn't talk anymore. We withdraw, not just kind of emotionally, we actually withdraw sexually in the bedroom. We're not going to be as open. We're not going to be as interested. And yet when we try to attend to these two different sets of vulnerabilities, what ends up happening is that both of us become more open and both of us become like our husband. Many women have noticed that when they are, when they are being intentional about that physical intimacy and having that intentional desire that they notice that their husband is just much more tender And he's much more warm and more attentive. And so that's like a signal of him feeling cared for. That's his signal. And so for us, our signal is on a lot of sorts of things, but we're also more open in the bedroom usually. So that's just a, that's an example of just how important this is. Um, It's all wrapped up in those insecurities. One reoccurring scripture that comes up for the Savvy Sauce is James 1.22. It says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And because our tagline here is Practical Chats for Intentional Living, we want to hear how you are applying these messages to your own life. What action steps have you taken after hearing one of these podcasts that has improved your life a little bit? We would love to hear it please email us at info at the You've documented, I'll just give an example from your book for both women and men, because this practically may be very helpful to some couples to understand one another. You wrote, as one woman put it, I know that my body climaxing almost has more to do with how close I feel to my husband than it does the physical act. And then from the husband's point of view, you had written, if you want to, you can press the reset button on your husband anytime, (laughs) which also made me giggle. But those are so helpful. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's also controversial to some degree because some people say, are you talking about manipulating him with your body? Like that's what some people are going to hear from that. And the reality is actually Not the way you're thinking, because this is where both people want it this way, where he is longing for connection in that example, 
And you want that connection as well. And just recognize is that this actually speaks in a very deep way to that question of am I able inside that he has and feeling desirable really speaks to that. And so this is a mutual way of showing one another that you care. So in today's world, it's a controversial question. It's a controversial issue. And all I'm doing is saying, (laughs) these are the numbers. This is something that if you feel like that there are some issues there in your relationship, think about caring for one another in what matters to the other person's vulnerabilities and speaking into that. Because it really does, in most cases, it speaks life to that person. Well, and on this topic of insecurities, would you mind sharing a lesson that one 81-year-old woman taught you? (laughs) I was telling this to a a, a women's group not that long ago. I was doing a a multi-speaker women's conference And I was one of the, I was asking the organizers if I could tell this story because it's a little bit spicy, but it was just so perfect on this topic because I was actually at another women's event a number of years ago and we were talking about this topic and about the insecurities inside and the woman who had founded this women's conference, like 40 something years before she was now 81 years old. (laughs) And she was talking about how important it was that at this women's conference that we did talk a bit about intimacy, like it's such a big deal, we needed to talk about it and the insecurities playing in and she said she had been at a women's Bible study. She had an 87 year old husband, she and her husband had had been married for a lot of years. And she had been at a women's Bible study where the apparently the Bible study teacher had addressed these insecurities and said, you know what, we have to get across to ourselves that in Christ, we are loved and we are beautiful and we are accepted just as we are with all of our imperfections. And that that, you know, helps in our life in many ways, including our intimate life. So she said, the teacher of this Bible study said, we have so many insecurities about our bodies, for example, that that she said, the next time that you get out of the shower, you drop that towel and you look in the bathroom mirror and you ask yourself, am I loved and accepted and beautiful just as I am? And so this 81-year-old lady said she did that the day before, and she got out of the shower, and she asked herself in the mirror, am I loved, accepted, and beautiful just as I am? And she hears this chuckle, (laughs) and she turns her head, and there is her 87-year-old husband lying on the bed in the bedroom, and he goes, yes, you are, and bring it over here, baby. (laughs) And I love that so much. Partly because I just love that story, but also because of what it says that we have found also in the numbers in this nationally representative survey, which is that if we can understand some of these things around one another and tend to one another's insecurities and vulnerabilities, there is no reason in the world, even if our bodies stop working perfectly as we get older and older, there's no reason in the world that we can't still have a rich, intimate life together. 
being creative and caring for one another well into our 80s and, and 90s even that when people are probably raising their eyebrows at that but uh, I've asked many sex therapists that question and they all say oh yes absolutely so that to me is encouraging I love because that just perfectly illustrates just the playfulness and the sense of humor and laughter and fun that it can add to enrich our marriage but let's also circle back to something that you had covered a little while ago about us missing each other's signals and having miscommunications that often lead to hurt. Because you write, quote, having a comfortable way to signal and receive openness or interest will create connection and prevent much pain, end quote. So Shanti, how can couples begin to develop their own private language or signals to communicate effectively in a healthy manner? <laughs> well, that example of writing the number on the mirror of how open am I feeling tonight? Those kinds of examples is something that you're just going to have to, you're going to have to talk to your spouse about. And the easiest way to do it to get started is essentially what do we already do? Like, what is it that already is a bit of a thing? And so like one couple, their particular schedule was such that there was a lot of running around to get the kids out the door for school early in the morning. And then they had a couple of hours before they had to each be at their individual jobs. So they took showers and everything after they got the kids to school, which, you know, obviously a lot of families do. And so one of the things that they had talked about that they didn't even realize was like an official signal, but they could turn it into one is as they're running around the kitchen with the kids, one of them would ask the other, so you getting ready to take your shower? And they would raise their eyebrows. And that was sort of an invitation to you want to join me? <laughs> yeah. And of course, the kids are, you know, like eight years old. They have no idea what's going on. But that was an example of something that they didn't realize was a thing. That was when we started asking them, like, how do you know whether you want to connect or not? That was the kind of story we heard and realized, oh, wait, that could become an official example of as opposed to just when it happens occasionally. And so it's that kind of stuff that you're developing your own private language in order to communicate well. Now. Let me just say, and this is really important, there are going to be some couples that have like significant heartache and, and pain in this area because maybe the communication is broken down, maybe the relationship has broken down, you know, maybe there's been trauma that has kind of gotten in the way and it's, you think it's a bridge too far to try to figure out how to get some sort of signal going that we already are doing because we're not doing anything. That's an example of where if there is some significant pain that has been built up, there's some maybe some work that has to be done first before you go into that. And sometimes the work is just, you know, reading the book out loud to one another and and going, oh, my gosh, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. You know, like understanding one another more, getting curious, like we talked about. But sometimes it's really important to say, you know what? 
there are some pieces of the puzzle here that we need somebody to help us figure out. We need to be able to figure out how to communicate more effectively on this and to go see a counselor, go see a therapist, even if it's just for a few visits, to be able to say we have some issues in communicating, especially around this area, but really all areas that we need to figure out in order to get better in the more intimate areas of our life. So that's something for people to just be aware of is that there are things that you can do, but you do actually, in some cases, have to do them before you can connect well. That's such a good word because help is available. And so some couples listening may absolutely be benefited by seeking that out. And if anybody wants to learn more from you after this conversation, where would you direct us? So probably the the most important starting point, we actually, and when I say we, I mean, Dr. Michael Seitzma and me and Jeff, we created a website called secretsofsexandmarriage.com. So it's the exact same as the book title. So secretsofsexandmarriage.com. And one of the things that we were, and still are, we're continuing to add to it all the time, that we were doing is wanting to build up a central resource, I guess, so that if people are like, oh, wow, I recognize I need a little help in this area, or, you know, what about my husband has a problem with pornography, or, well, we're not having sex as much because I have, like, significant sexual pain, or stuff that's more specialized, right? One of the things we wanted to do and have done on that website is we're, we've created a bunch of resources for people on those particular areas, and we're adding more all the time. And, and this is probably the most important piece, is that if someone needs a little bit of extra help, we have some ways that that person can get some referral resources to find a specialist in whatever the area is. Because there, that's the thing that's really encouraging. Just so you know, like there is no reason in the world that most of these problems can't be solved. Like most of them absolutely can. And that was one of the most encouraging things about working with a sex therapist on this project is stuff that I saw is like, oh my gosh, that's a really big issue. He's like, no, 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 no. We deal with this all the time. It's fine. So that's helpful mm -hmm. <laughs> and encouraging. And, and often can be, something can be started even if only one partner wants to start it and just get some counsel and advice. It's so good. We will certainly link to all of that in the show notes for today's episode. And additionally, we have at least 50 episodes that are free on the Savvy Sauce that do discuss all of these different areas of sexual intimacy in marriage. So I will add links to those as well. But just for fun, Shanti, are there any funny family stories? Because there were three out of the four members of your family that were working together on this project. Is that right? <laughs> oh my gosh. I do not know how you found that. That was, <laughs> that was hidden in the acknowledgements of the book. Um, yes, there is a funny family story because uh, Dr. Mike and I, after we do the, all the interviews and the anonymous interviews and whatever, we always do these big surveys, right? These nationally representative surveys, we get really good data. It's really expensive. And this data is purchased at a at a cost, basically. And so like for this project, it was a $120,000 project. 
And so it, the analysis of this precious data becomes really important. And we had a PhD graduate student working with us to do a lot of the number crunching and, you know, do a lot of the analysis because we could do it. But, you know, we just don't have time to do that and the writing and some other analysis and all the other stuff we were doing. So we had this graduate PhD student working with us and we get the data in. And about a week later, I mean, it's not funny, but a week later, she has this like family emergency where she has to move back to where she's from because her dad, I guess, had had a stroke or needed a lot of medical attention and they needed her help. And she said, I'm so sorry, like, I'm not going to be able to work on this project. And we're like, oh, my gosh, it's this is May. And so by by now, there's no way to find somebody else who could do a summer job because this is basically a summer job for a graduate student or whatever. And there's no way that we're going to be able to find somebody who's that good. And we have the book to turn in like this was devastating. And so I'm like and I asked Jeff, I'm like, what are we going to (laughs) do? We don't have anybody to analyze the data. And he kind of looks at me funny and he says, um. I think she's living upstairs <laughs> because our daughter, who is an engineering student, which is heavily quantitative, heavily math oriented, our daughter's internship for the summer had actually fallen through. And I realized, oh, my gosh, we don't need a Ph.D. graduate student in sexual therapy. We just need somebody who's really good at quantitative analysis. And so we went to our, at the time, 20-year-old daughter. <laughs> and we're like, um, how would you feel about being the analyst on this project with your mother and father about sex? <laughs> and the poor girl is like, okay, I need a job. I need the income. You need my help. But you are paying for my therapy. <laughs> So, and it actually ended up working really well. And she just basically pretended that she was not working for her mother and father. She she just pretended this was a job like any other job. And she did a great job. So I love it. And fortunately, you've met and worked with many wonderful therapists through the years. So that works out well. <laughs> and I'm just wondering what family conversations would look like around the table then, because three out of the four are working on it. Not none. Zero. Because <laughs> I'm quite sorry, but like... We, she put on her little professional hat and she's like, okay, let's analyze the orgasm questions here. Here's the orgasm answers. And she's like, just so you know, I'm pretending I'm not having this conversation with you, my mom. <laughs> so no, none of those conversations happened around the family dinner table because, <laughs> because we pretended we were not members of the same family for those professional conversations. My word. Thank you for giving us a glimpse into what that would actually look like that definitely provides some laughs. And Shanti, you already know that we're called the Savvy Sauce because savvy is synonymous with practical knowledge. So as my final question for you today, what is your Savvy Sauce? So it's actually, I wouldn't have been able to put it this way until this project, but my Savvy Sauce is curiosity. That's my encouragement for everybody is there is life changing stuff that happens when you try to understand your spouse better in whatever the area is, right? Not just this area, but kind of recognizing and being able to look under the surface 
and being able to see like the vulnerable person underneath that confident exterior. (laughs) So understanding that you are trying to dig out, trying to investigate and, and actually trying to speak to that inner person, you know, that tender heart that's on the inside, that is life changing once you can do that. That's so good. And Shanti, as always, you are such a cheerful and helpful and knowledgeable guest today. So thank you for being my guest. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure to be with you. One more thing before you go. Have you heard the term gospel before? It simply means good news. And I want to share the best news with you. But it starts with the bad news. Every single one of us were born sinners, but Christ desires to rescue us from our sin, which is something we cannot do for ourselves. This means there is absolutely no chance we can make it to heaven on our own. So for you and for me, it means we deserve death and we can never pay back the sacrifice we owe to be saved. We need a Savior. But God loved us so much, He made a way for His only Son to willingly die in our place as the perfect substitute. This gives us hope of life forever in right relationship with Him. That is good news. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and died in our place for our sin. This was God's plan to make a way to reconcile with us so that God can look at us and see Jesus. We can be covered and justified through the work Jesus finished if we choose to receive what He has done for us. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. I pray someone today, right now, is touched and chooses to turn their life over to you. Will you clearly guide them and help them take their next step in faith to declare you as Lord of their life? We trust you to work and change lives now for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are declaring him for me, so me for him. You get the opportunity to live your life for him. And at this podcast, we're called the Savvy Sauce for a reason. We want to give you practical tools to implement the knowledge you have learned. So you ready to get started? First, tell someone, say it out loud, get a Bible. The first day I made this decision, my parents took me to Barnes and Noble and let me choose my own Bible. I selected the Quest NIV Bible and I love it. You can start by reading the book of John. Also get connected locally, which just means tell someone who's a part of a church in your community that you made a decision to follow Christ. I'm assuming they will be thrilled to talk with you about further steps, such as going to church and getting connected to other believers to encourage you. We want to celebrate with you too, so feel free to leave a comment for us here if you did make a decision to follow Christ. We also have show notes included where you can read scripture that describes this process. And finally, be encouraged. Luke 15:10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens are praising with you for your decision today. And if you've already received this good news, I pray you have someone to share it with. You are loved, and I look forward to meeting you here next time.